Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. Turn with me to Mark chapter 11. We're going to begin reading in verse 12 and continue down through verse 25. Mark 11 verses 12 through 25. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word once again. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whatever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that if your father also who is in heaven, so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. The grass withers and the flower and the fig tree fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Most gracious Father, as we look at your word once again, would you please strengthen me by your spirit that I might preach clearly and boldly, fill my mouth with your gospel words that we all together this morning might be strengthened in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, as we come to this passage, it's, it is a difficult passage, but it's also kind of very, very instructive, as all Bible passages are, for how we understand the Christian life. And the difficulty of this passage flows from kind of how it is unique. And it's something that you you may not have ever thought of before. But this is the only miracle in Mark's gospel or, or in any of the canonical gospels that's a miracle of destruction. Right? All the other miracles and, and things that we see are about making things right again or, or fixing things. But but this one undoes something. Jesus curses this fig tree, he destroys it. And so the difficulty of this passage has been seen, it's exemplified in kind of how it has been handled throughout the ages. 
It's raised various questions about the justice of God from believers and non-believers alike. The, the famed atheist Bertrand Russell said of this passage that it tarnishes the character of Jesus. When you go on and read what he's saying, it's because he doesn't understand how we can love this guy and follow this guy and exalt this man who apparently just had a grudge. Maybe he was a little bit hangry and cursed this fig tree. A Christian author, T.W. Manson, said, It is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty serious indictment of, of Jesus and, and what's going on here. Even R.T. France admits that, that if we don't understand this passage rightly in, in its context, it, it is kind of difficult because it does just seem like from this place of, of personal disappointment at finding no figs, even when Mark tells us it wasn't even the season to find figs, Jesus just gets super cranky and curses this fig tree. So what is going on here? What exactly is the way forward as we try to think about this passage? Well, the, the key here is remembering that favorite literary device of Mark that we've talked about before, the, the Markan sandwich, where, where he takes one narrative and then he stuffs a different narrative right in the middle of it like he's building a sandwich. Because as we read the story, you may have been like, wait a minute, we jumped back and forth. There was a, a bit about the fig tree, and then all of a sudden Jesus is at the temple, cleansing the temple, and then there's some more about the fig tree. What's going on there? Well, this is that literary device that Mark so loves to use. Interrupting what, what seems like the main narrative with a secondary story. And whenever you see this happening in the Gospel of Mark, it's a clue that I need to read these scenes all together as making one point. And, and when we do that, it begins to help us understand the cursing of the fig tree. That it wasn't just a case of, of a hangry Jesus and, 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 and miraculous powers being used for ill temper or whatever it was that, that the one guy said. Rather, as, as R.T. France summarizes it, this is one of the more elaborate examples of Mark, Mark's tendency to weave, se weave separate incidents together by shifting the spotlight to and fro between two narrative scenes so as to enable the reader to interpret each incident in the light of the other. He goes on to say that the whole point of this was to show a symbolism of, of the fig tree or of the temple in the fig tree. That's what's going on here. So we've got to read these stories together. So that's what we're going to do. But, but because it's kind of confusing and, and because it's this Mark and sandwich, we're going to take the sandwich apart. And first, we're going to look at the, the middle bits of the sandwich, the, the story about the temple itself in verses 15 to 19. Then we'll look at each piece of bread that makes the sandwich, the cursing of the fig tree, and then the lessons of faith that come from that. So first, the cleansing of the temple. And to, to really understand in, in verses 15 through 19 what's going on here, it's helpful for us to have a little bit of history about the temple in our minds and about the function of the temple in our mind that Jesus would have been walking up to. 
So, so remember, there was the first temple that was built by Solomon under the direction of God that, that replaced the tabernacle and, and, and the, 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 the spirit of God, the presence of God indwelt the Holy of Holies just like we saw in the tabernacle. But of course, we read in 2 Kings 25 that, that under Nebuchadnezzar's lead, Babylon destroyed this temple. Then we read in Ezra, with the return from exile, a second temple was built. But we know from Ezra and from, from Habakkuk, that, that, that the, or from Haggai, that, that this temple paled in comparison to the first. And, and the old guys who had seen the first weep. They're like, this doesn't, this doesn't add up. It's not the same. And God said, you're right, but keep going because I'm still I'm going to do something big. So just build this temple. But, but one interesting and often forgotten or, or overlooked or not realized fact about this second temple is that the presence of God never indwelt it. We, we, we have no record in the Bible of, of that glorious scene where the, the presence of God comes down and dwells on the Holy of Holies. And this second temple kind of gets transformed into a third temple by Herod that, that, that is just like, all the like glory that, that you could come up with architecturally, the, these massive 30-foot Corinthian columns that, that took three people you know, extending their hands to reach around and all of these different courts. And, and, and it was all built in this fantastic way that had nothing to do with the command of God and made all kinds of, of kind of architectural, theologically significant expansions to the temple. That's the temple that Jesus was walking into. Not even the second temple that, that we see talked about in the Bible, that this kind of second temple on, on steroids, that this third temple, that's what Jesus was walking into. And if you've ever read any of the Gospels, you know that Jesus doesn't particularly appreciate theological expansion. He, he doesn't really appreciate us, us taking something that God commanded and saying, you know what? Here's how I think we can make this better. Or here's how I think this, that we can make this more scrupulous or, or whatever. Jesus has no appetite for any of that. But this is exactly what he's walking into. I'm going to read another quote from, from R.T. France to help us understand kind of how this temple was functioning in the first century. He says the temple was not only the heart of Israel's religious life, but also the symbol of its national identity. The rededication and purification of the temple in 164 BC, after Antiochus Epiphanes had defiled it with the worship and altar of Zeus, and the restoration of temple worship were the high points of the Maccabean victory. That, that was a victory that, that, that threw out the oppressors and, and reestablished Jewish worship. And these were commemorated annually thereafter in the Feast of Dedication in December. The patriotic as well as the religious symbolism of the temple was thus enormous, and the magnificence of Herod's rebuilding matched its symbolic significance. In other words, this temple that Jesus was walking into with all of these Herodian expansions to the second temple that lacked the indwelling of the Spirit and had all of these kind of significant theological and nationalistic import attached to it that went far beyond what the Bible taught. This temple was as much about national identity and pride as about religious worship. And as such, it had diverted tremendously from the original divine intent of the temple, even though there were still things happening in it 
that looked correct. That's the important thing to remember about this scene. There was still stuff going down that you would see and you'd be like, oh yeah, I recognize that from Leviticus or, or I recognize those clothes that the priest is wearing or, or what he's doing. I recognize some of this stuff. But then when you stepped back and looked around, you were like, but, but then there's a whole lot of other stuff happening here too. There, 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 there's all kinds of weird stuff going on that, that, that I don't recognize. And the attitude about what this temple represents for the people I don't recognize from the Bible either. This is important for us to remember that if you looked at it from one angle, you would see what appeared to be devout Jews doing what they were supposed to be doing. If you looked at it from another angle, you would see what was actually something that had diverted very far from biblical religion. And so this is what Jesus finds. He shows up and, and it had become a marketplace. Particularly, it, it seems that it's this, this new court that had been added on, the court of the Gentiles, because they weren't allowed in. There was also a court of women, uh, just for the record. There was all kinds of separation going on. Uh, and, and the court of the Gentiles had been turned into this marketplace where, where there was money changing and buying and selling and all kinds of distractions from what was supposed to be going on. And... And some believe that it was probably so overtaken that, that the Gentiles had kind of lost even their separated place in this temple because it had been filled and turned into a marketplace. That's what Jesus finds. And that's what he begins to rebuke. And so in verse 17, or in verse 15 and 16, he, he, it says that, that he starts overturning the tables of the money changers, and, and he's driving out these people that were selling. Like, all of a sudden, this like, and, and I, I love Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, but, but that picture in this scene is kind of lost. This is no, like, hippie, long-haired Jesus in his sandals showing up and handing out hugs. That's not what's happening here. He is mad. And he's throwing tables, and he's probably, I mean... It, you can imagine how loud you have to be if you're in a marketplace to be heard. This is not a pretty scene on one hand. On the other hand, it's astoundingly beautiful. He's not allowing people even to carry stuff through the temple anymore. And he starts teaching. And he goes back to Isaiah 56 that we read earlier. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Isaiah 56, if you were listening, was all about, when we read those eight verses, it was all about the inclusion of those who were normally excluded. The eunuchs get to be brought in. The nations get to be brought in. And, and, and Yahweh says through his prophet Isaiah, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Now, now think about just, just at this level, the contrast that's already being set up. This temple that, that, that was standing for their nationalistic pride and, and, and their badge. This is who gets to come in. And we'll let you in this far, but not this far. Is, is, is at odds with the prophetic vision 
of what the temple's supposed to be. It's at odds with the prophetic vision of this eschatological temple where every tribe and tongue and people and nation will be brought in to worship God and to pray. He then goes on and says, My house should be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Here pointing back to a passage in Jeremiah chapter 7 where he's, he's driving at the same issue. That, that instead of making it a place of inclusion, it's a place where you rip people off. The combined effects of the quotations from Isaiah 56 and, and Jeremiah is to assert that Gentiles have access to God's self-revelation to Israel on the basis of sincerity of heart rather than by legal and cultic purity. Mark Edwards wrote that in his commentary. In other words, Jesus putting these two quotes together drives at the fact that they were completely missing the point of the temple and the point of Scripture. They were missing it altogether. Even though it looked like they were getting so much right. Even though the, the, the sacrifices were being performed, they were missing it. And so when we look at this passage and, 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 and you look at, at, at how it's written in your Bible, just above verse 15, if you have an ESV, I think most English translations have a title that, that say the cleansing of the temple. In the ESV, it's Jesus cleanses the temple. But when we start to put all this together, we begin to realize that this wasn't a cleansing. A cleansing is, is the restoration of something. It's, it's cleaning something up and, and making it new again so it can be used properly. That's not actually what was going on here at all. This was an undoing, a, a deconstruction, if you want to use a fun buzzword from today. This was a repudiation of the temple. Not a cleansing of it. Jesus didn't come and, and do what he did in the temple that day just so that things could be done right or done better the next day. He was making a bigger statement than that. And it seems that they got it. Because what's the chief priest and the scribe's response? Look at verse 18. The chief priest and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. In other words, they realized immediately, if we let this dude keep going, we're done. If we let this dude keep going, all of our systems of power are undone. If we let this dude keep going, everything that we're used to, all the ways that we're used to doing it, all the authority that we're used to having, all the ways that we lord it over people, all of this structure, all of this glory, all of this money that we're making is gone. It's gone. It's completely gone. What do we do? We kill him. That's what we need to do. See, this wasn't about them. This wasn't Jesus coming alongside and saying, hey, guys, you're, you're getting a couple things wrong. Let's straighten this out, and then we'll be back on the right path. This was Jesus saying, this entire system is done. And they knew that. And they knew that the only way forward 
was to get rid of this one that people were so prone to listen to. And so this line of thought, this understanding of what it is that Jesus was doing forces us to ask some questions of ourselves and our churches as well, doesn't it? In the maintenance of our religious traditions, are we keeping out of our churches the very people for whom Christ died? In the maintenance of our religious traditions, are we keeping out of our churches the very people for whom Christ died? This can happen in a number of ways. It can happen just via open prejudice, which I have not seen evidence of, thankfully, in this church, but but you don't have to look far to find it. This can happen more subtly via our commitment to a way of being Christian that is unhinged from Scripture, like it was for them. They had a commitment to a way of being Jewish and and following the law and and walking according to the covenant, but that was actually unhinged from Scripture. And this can come in in kind of opposite ways. It can come from from the result of too strong a commitment to, to tradition, or it can come from as the result of too strong of a commitment to, to kind of progress or, or, or the culture or, or kind of making things appeasable. It can happen either way. It can also happen via our not being concerned with how we do what we do affects the people around us. Or affects others that, that may want to come in to our body. It's what we're doing in the maintenance of our religious tradition, keeping out of our church the very people for whom Christ died. It's an important question. Another question that that it forces us to ask is, have we reduced Christianity either individually or corporately to a way of securing a particular way of life for ourselves? Surely not, right? Have we reduced our faith to a flag we fly to to identify with a certain group or to get a certain group to identify with and support us? Surely not, right? Those are the things that were happening in the temple. Those are the things that I think too frequently happen in us individually and and in our churches and and, and certainly in our broader church culture that that we're often either blind or or, or resistant to seeing. And that's what got Jesus so riled up. That's why he was flipping tables. That's why he was driving out money changers. Because their religion had become a means to an end for their glory, not the glory of God. So now let's back up in the story to the cursing of the fig tree. And and this is a a difficult section, as I've already alluded to, and people, because of that, have tried to deal with it different ways. One way people have tried to deal with it is say, "Well, well, maybe this didn't happen when we think it happened. Because it seems like Mark's wanting us to read verses 11 through through 16 as, as the Passion Week, and he is. And some people say, well, maybe this was like a different trip to Jerusalem and Mark just put it here to kind of make a point or something. Maybe this happened in autumn when Jesus was coming for the Feast of Tabernacles and it was after the main harvest and maybe there was some, some gleaning that could have been done, but, but those figs were all gone and so Jesus was like, curse you. 
That's not how Mark's writing the gospel. That's not what's going on here. And we don't need to to rearrange time in order to get out from under something that's difficult. The other thing that people will say is that, that we need to understand the horticulture of figs because the way figs apparently work, I have no idea. I've spent my life in the Bible. Never took a botany class. Maybe Joan could affirm this for us. But, but apparently the way figs work is after they get picked in the fall, they, they start to bud and get a little bit of fruit on them that stays there actually all winter and then begins to mature in the spring. And apparently sometimes people would go ahead and eat the figs early. The first figs. And, and so maybe what Jesus saw was, oh, here's a tree full of leaves. It's going to have some, some early figs on it, but it didn't. But the problem with that, of course, is Mark said, it was not the time for figs. So that, that, that feels a little bit like trying to shoehorn something in there to get out from under a difficulty in the Bible. But those are two very, very common ways of dealing with what's going on here. A better way is to recognize that Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Joel, Micah, Luke, Mark, Jesus, all of these people regularly use the fig tree for whatever reason in God's providence as a metaphor for Israel. Sometimes in good ways, sometimes in bad ways. So we read in Hosea, and I'm I'm picking those only because we've recently been in Hosea, and I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. So there, the fig trees are, are standing in place of the blessing of God. That's what she's relying on rather than God. Hosea 9.10, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. There, it's a positive metaphor. We, we can read metaphor after metaphor using the fig tree. So following this line of thought, another commentator says this, like the prophets who have on occasion dramatized a particularly trenchant message by action, Jesus dramatizes the end of the temple by an enacted parable. The leafy fig tree with all its promise of fruit is as deceptive as the temple, which despite its religious commerce and activity is really an outlaw's hideout. The curse of the fig tree is a symbol of God's judgment of the temple. In other words, what we're seeing here is not miraculous power being used for ill temper. It's not tarnishing Jesus' name. What we're seeing here is the Lord of all creation taking the prerogative that is his to use his creation to teach a parable about his people and their failures and what he has come to do. And as the sovereign God in human form, he has every right to do that. We, we, we have to be careful that we're not personifying this fig tree in such a way that makes God of creation unjust. It's just a tree. If he wants to curse it for a point, he can. And he did. Jesus' summary verdict, R.T. France writes, on this braggart fig tree is a verdict of the failure of God's people and is of a peace with his developing polemic against the barren temple. Jesus brought the fig tree to an end so that it would never bear fruit as a symbol of what he was about to do with the temple. That's what's going on here. He is living and acting symbolically.
to show us what it is that he's about to do. To show us why it is that he came. And what we find is, as we get into the, the, the lessons of faith from the fig tree and the temple, is that it was not simply the fig tree would continue alive but without fruit. It was dead, withered to the root. Do y'all, do y'all get what that means as we take this and apply it to the temple? That means there's not these two ways. You can still do the temple thing or you can come to Jesus. No, this way, the temple way, the fig tree way is withered to the very root. There's no life left in it. It's an empty shadow. Nothing is of value there any longer as it pertains to our standing with God. There's nothing left, Peter says. It's withered to the very root. And so from that, Jesus begins to explain these lessons of faith. And these also make this passage difficult because there's some real hard things about throwing mountains into the sea and things like that that, that that commentators have come up with all kinds of fun interpretations of. Everything from like, oh, it was probably this far off mountain of this Herodian thing and uh, to like, yeah, no, you can do that. Like name it, claim it, you get mad at Pinnacle Mountain, it's gone right into the river. No big deal. It's probably not either of those things. It's probably not either of those things. This whole story has been about the the coming end of the temple ministry with the coming of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. So maybe these lessons of faith are on that same track. Let's see if they are. Jesus' first response to Peter and his observation is this. Have faith in God. Trust what God is doing. Okay, well that fits easy enough. We showed up, we cursed this fig tree, we're cleansing the temple, people are about to kill me. Trust God, Peter. Peter wasn't particularly good at that. He needed to be reminded of that often, like we do. Trust God. And then he expands on this in three ways. First, just just thinking generally about faith. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. And this is the part where we're like, all right, What the heck? There's a lot of mountains in the world. I'm pretty sure someone somewhere along the way has tested this out. And I'm pretty sure that would have made the news. Mount Everest is no longer there, right? Like we would have heard about it. Even if it was something small, if a mountain just disappeared, we would have been like there, like crop circles get our attention, guys, right? So maybe that's not what's going on here. Maybe there's something else going on. Maybe that word, this mountain, this, maybe the particularity of the mountain that he's talking about is important. Maybe as Jesus is coming into the temple, which is on a mountain, and he curses this fig tree on the way in, And he does all this stuff on the mountain and he leaves and then they see the fig tree and there's this whole literary conversation going on. Maybe what Jesus is saying is, look, you can be done with the temple. You can be done with all its sacrifices and you can come to me for forgiveness and it'll be given to you. Maybe that's the temple 
and the mountain that's going to be thrown into the sea. And, and you know what, what's helpful is this, this quote that Jesus gives us later where he says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone up on another that will not be thrown down. What's Jesus saying? If you look to me, there's no need for anything that's happening on that mountain. None. Isn't this what the author of Hebrews taught us in chapter 10 that we read earlier in our liturgy? Those sacrifices happened year after year. Why? Because they didn't actually do anything. My sacrifice happens once and I sit down. Why? Because it did everything. Everything. If you have faith in Jesus, you can say to that mountain with all its legal requirements, be thrown into the sea. Be thrown into the sea and it'll be done. Why? Because Jesus has satisfied everything that it demanded of you. And it has no more demands on you, period. No more sacrifices need to be made. No more blood needs to be shed. No more animals need to be killed. No more pilgrimages need to be taken. It's done. No more festivals need to be celebrated. It's done. If we look to Christ, we can say to all of that, you're done. And it is. Edwards again writes this. In his sacrificial death on the cross, Jesus alone is the access to God. The fig tree thus symbolizes the temple as the means of approach to God. The temple is fundamentally from the roots replaced by Jesus as the center of Israel. That's how you get yourself killed in first century Israel. You show up and you say, everything that this is about, you don't have to do anymore because I'm here. That will get you good and dead. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. The second application of faith, and I know I'm getting long here, I'm sorry, but I want to finish this, is prayer. He says, whenever you stand praying, believe that you have received it. And it will be yours. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. The first thing I want us to notice here is that whenever you stand prayer, praying, because the posture is just fascinating to me. Because how often, and I'm not saying don't bow your head and close your eyes, like I get it, right? But how often is that a position that we take because we're groveling before a God whom we feel we have to persuade to hear us and be benevolent to us. I do it too. And so we get down on our knees and we wear the place out like those great warriors of prayers that we write books about that have the place worn in the carpet next to their bed where they sat and, and cried and, and weeped over their sins. And we, no, stand up and say, God, forgive me. Your son died. God, provide for me. Your son died. God, I need this. Your son died. I'm your child. Think about how a kid comes to you. If you have kids or a kid has ever come to you asking anything, they didn't come up and walk up and be like, 
Daddy, will you please take me to come and go to get a bite? No! That's stupid! They come up and they're like, Daddy, can we go to come and go and get an icy or a buy or something? They look up and, and they're expecting you to go, yeah, let's go. Even though we're usually tired and cranky and we don't, God's way better than us. Way better. You know what's interesting is it never, in the New Testament, in the epistles anyway, it never tells us, it never gives us a, a posture directive in prayer that says bow, not once, anywhere in the epistles. Never. The only, in fact, directive that it gives us for our posture in prayer is when Paul tells Timothy, I desire in every place that men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. All the bowing is done is simply in reverence to God as king. Do you see what Jesus has changed about how we come before God? We don't come to be covered in blood and to offer sacrifices and to pay obeisance. No, 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 no. We come to our Father and ask for what we need and believe that He's such a good Father that we already got it. That's the kind of expectation that we should live with in coming to our Father. Well, that sounds like word of faith. All right, cool. That sounds like name it, claim it. Well, okay. It also sounds like what Jesus tells us to do here. Now, I get it. Some of this stuff gets out of control. If you're mad at me for saying that, we can talk later. And I'll say it again. Because what Jesus teaches us to do is to come to our Father with full expectation that He hears us and gives it to us. I don't know about you, but that is a fresh drink of water to my parched reform mouth. Whew, I love it. The third thing He says is about forgiveness. Oh, I forgot to tie that to the temple. What was the altar, the, the altar of incense all about? Why does prayer get attached to the temple? The altar of incense, the incense going up, was the prayers of saints to God. Stop there so we can keep going. The third thing is forgiveness. This one's easy to see how it attaches to the temple. And the, the temple, that was the place you went for forgiveness. That was the place you went to, to kill animals. That, that was the place that you went so that blood could be shed and Jesus is saying, hey, you don't have to do any of that anymore at all, ever. It's not needed. <clears throat> Jesus, by his sacrifice, has fully satisfied the wrath of God. Like we confessed earlier. Fully satisfied the wrath of God. So that I need offer nothing else, even if I sin again while I'm preaching to you. I don't have to offer anything because Jesus has done it. I don't have to go to a temple and make it. I don't have to go there for forgiveness. I have this in Jesus Christ. One last quote. Mark's following the fig tree temple sandwich with a call to faith signifies that Jesus and not the temple is the object of faith. Faith is the opposite of doubting in one's heart. Faith is also the opposite of fear. It is a choice to trust in Jesus despite everything to the contrary. And to expect from him what cannot be expected from anything else in the world. 
anything else in the world, we can expect it from Christ. Whether in daily life, which requires such great faith constantly, or in prayer, or in forgiveness, we must constantly look to Jesus as the object of our faith and expect from Him what can't be expected from anyone or anything else. This is the lesson of the fig tree and of the repudiation of the temple. That Christ is enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the joy of the finished work of Christ and for all these glorious pictures that he gives us about what it was that he was coming to do. Help us to trust him and nothing else. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of Scripture and theology.